So you probably got a stone, because I mentioned it, or you saw it on your way in. And I am sure that you're curious why in the world we would have buckets of rocks. Now here's the good thing. For the next several weeks when you come in, there will be a bucket with stones in it, and I'm going to invite you every week to pick up one. Because we're going to talk about, well, stones a little bit over the next few weeks. Stones are fascinating. These are our marble chips, for the record, bought at your local hardware store. I did not, like, scrape the parking lot, <laughs> so just so we're clear. Um, I don't know if that makes you feel better or worse about them, but nonetheless, that's what they are. Uh, you know, went there, they might have a variety of them over the next few weeks. Uh, probably all had some negative interactions with stones in your life, I would guess. Well, let me tell you one of mine. Actually, it was more negative for the other guy than it was for me, but I felt bad. You see, when I was a kid, we lived in Central Florida in Leesburg in Lake County, and we were very near the Ocala National Forest, and in the Ocala National Forest, there are various swimming holes you can go to, and I don't remember the name of the lake at the time, but we went to this one lake, and it had a large diving tower kind of out a ways in the lake, and so it was a popular spot. The youth group from church would go there kids group, I don't remember how old I was, we would go there and go swimming in the, in the lake, and a big feature was to climb up that diving platform and jump up, I don't know, it was about 75 feet tall, at least in my mind at the time, it was this massive diving platform, uh, cliff diving basically in, the, in, in Central Florida is what it felt like, and uh, in case you're not getting the drift, I'm not exactly the most daredevilish person, but as my roller coaster experience taught me, or maybe you last week, I can be swayed by peer pressure and so with all the other kids around saying oh come on Charles don't be a chicken all those encouraging godly things kids say to each other because sticks and stones may break my bones but words will never harm me except they really hurt a lot especially as a teenager or whatever age I was and so I reluctantly scaled the tower took about an hour <laughs> to get all the way up and if you're a little bit, let's say, respectful of heights, that sounds better than afraid, doesn't it? You would probably do what I did and stay very near the center of that tower. I was not, though I was up there, had no intentions of jumping off. In fact, my idea was to climb back down the ladder at the first opportunity. Unfortunately, our church group was a little bit sizable, and so there was always somebody coming up, and I never got the chance to go down. And there I stayed, and there I waited, and there I prayed. My, my prayer life improved a lot that day. I was never closer to God physically and spiritually than in that moment. Well, I got maybe because, again, of the godly encouragement of my friends calling me all those names that kids often call their friends. I, they said, it's fine. Just look over the edge. You don't have to jump. Just get a little closer. And so as an idiot... I got up and stepped closer to the edge of the platform. And one of my dear friends, who shall remain nameless, just in case he ever stumbles across our podcast, um, decided that the Holy Spirit should move me to jump. And he, acting as an agent of the Holy Spirit, gave me a gentle nudge into that great abyss. And I've told this story before because one of the the, the people that was here at the time, Jake Lescalite, likes this story because I screamed like a girl <laughs> the whole way down. 
it was not the most macho moment of my life. <laughs> well, I'm glad to say I survived. Was quite embarrassed, swam off with a bruised ego, and, well, let's just say a little bit of hatred in my heart for that young man that helped me. <laughs> and as I'm off swimming by myself, I step on something on the bottom of that lake that felt kind of hard and stepped on it again, said, hmm, I wonder what that is, and dove down, and it was a, a stone. And I looked across the lake, and there was that man, <laughs> that young man, that godly influence on my life who had pushed me from the top of the tower. And I said, I'm going to scare him. I'm going to throw this at him because I'm mad. Apparently, my aim is better than I thought because I reared back and threw it, and it skipped across the surface of the water and caught him in the mouth. And I felt horrible. I thought at the time he deserved it. Thought, you know, maybe just scare him. And in typical fashion for most of the stories in our life, when things happen, just boom, right in the mouth. So he's bleeding. The leaders are coming out. Who threw the rock? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know where it came from. It was obvious where it came from. There was one person in the direction from which the rock came. And so, needless to say, I was disciplined when I got home. Is that fair? <laughs> For my uh, angry outburst. I remember that story pretty well. Uh, regret that. Felt awfully bad and apologized probably more times than was necessary to that young man for hitting him in the rock. By the way, he never apologized for pushing me off. Just for the record. <laughs> just want to get it out there. Turns out I am the better person. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. So, you know, it's interesting stories that, that we might have around seemingly insignificant objects like a rock. Rocks play a surprising role at times in stories in Scripture. And we're going to look at several over the next weeks where rocks or stones come into play and see if we might learn something from them. The first place we're going to look is, is really about where we left off last week in the book of Exodus. Um, the main text we'll look at is Exodus chapter 32. If you want to grab a Bible and turn there, feel free. But I'm going to back up to set the scene for what happens in Exodus 32. Because before that, to get to Exodus 32, the children of Israel had to be delivered from slavery in Egypt. And God miraculously intervened on their behalf in one of the most famous episodes in their history, one that they still to this day remember and celebrate through the, the Passover ceremony that observant Jews would still observe. In fact, just a few weeks around the time of Easter, Passover will also happen, and you'll see much about that and hear much about that. Um, but through God's miraculous intervention and a series of plagues, they are delivered from Egypt. They leave. Last week, we saw them between Pharaoh's army and the Red Sea, where God, through Moses as their leader, and through his divine intervention, both parted the sea and let them go across on dry land and then closed the sea up over the whole army of Pharaoh and drowned their adversary. From there, they move on and over the course of several months, make their way to what will become one of the most important places in Jewish history, 
they find themselves at the base of Mount Sinai. And much of the rest of the book of Exodus takes place at the base of Mount Sinai. And kind of to give us a background to what's going on there, it's, it's in many ways a covenant ceremony where God is setting the people that he has delivered up to be his people and kind of giving them a bit of his blessing. And Exodus chapter 19, beginning in verse 4, let me just read a few verses. They may be up on the screens. I think I put them in the slideshow as well. Um, it, it tells us this, God speaking, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites, Moses, to take that message. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together. We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. I can relate to that. There have been moments in my life, maybe moments in your life spiritually, where you have felt that sort of connection to God where you have made that promise. Maybe not in those exact words, but in some form or fashion. God, whatever you want from me, I will give it to you. Whatever you ask of me, God, I will do. Or maybe if we're trying to break ourselves out of a habit, we say, God, because of who you are, I will never do that again. We make these kind of vows to God. Unfortunately, we'll see in Israel's life, as in our own, sometimes it doesn't take long to go from I'll never or I'll always to, as we've said before in the immortal words of Britney Spears, oops, I did it again. Who knew she was a theologian, huh? <laughs> Probably none of us. Nonetheless, and so the children of Israel say to God, Everything you have said, we will do. Well, from there, things get really remarkable because Moses is called up on Mount Sinai. And as Moses is called up on Mount Sinai, the presence of God descends upon that mountain in tangible ways. It says in Scripture that the, the smoke coming from the top of Mount Sinai is like the smoke of a billowing fire. And there are earthquakes, and the people are at first terrified of this manifestation of their God. And God has already fought so much for them. We mentioned the parting of the Red Sea and the defeat of Pharaoh's army, but that's not the end of God's intervention for them. Between the time they cross the Red Sea and the time they get to the foot of Mount Sinai over that course of two or three months, God time and again delivers. At one point, they're hungry, and so God provides manna in the morning miraculously. After getting tired of manna, he also provides quail miraculously. A little bit later, they're thirsty. And in their thirst, uh, they ask Moses to do something. Moses prays to God, and, and God says to Moses, strike the rock, and he, or speak to the rock. Which one is it? Okay, I've got to go back and look. The water came out of the rock. <laughs> Somehow... That happened. I know that much. Um, and so God miraculously provides water. And then not too long after that, they have enemies come against them, the Amalekites. That is a fascinating story as, as the, the procedure for victory over the Amalekites is as long as Moses holds his staff, his rod up, 
Israel is victorious, but as his hands tire and his hands go down, the Amalekites become to be victorious. And so we know that, that Aaron and Hur come along beside him and prop his arms up so that he can keep his arms up. And so God, in these ways, time and again, delivers Israel. And they come to the base of the mountain full, we would expect, of gratitude and awe at this God and the, the manifestation of God coming upon the mountain and the awe that that generated, even the fear that that generated. We will do what God has said, they proclaim, and Moses takes that message back to God. He goes up the mountain. Now, there's a problem, Exodus chapter 32, as I said, where we're going to spend most of our time. It tells us in the beginning of that chapter in verse 1, when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, so long in those days is, well, a period of 40 days. So what would that be? About a little less than six weeks. Um, in fact, we actually don't know when this happened. This had to happen sooner than 40 days. Moses was gone 40 days, but sometime in those intervening 40 days, all their excitement and awe of God begins to wane because it tells us in the same verse, when Moses was slow in coming down, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Now, a couple interesting things that we don't notice often in the English text that are worth pointing out here. Number one, it says they gathered around Aaron in the NIV. Maybe you have a different translation. Um, this same phrase is used elsewhere when the people come against Moses, and it's not gathered around, it's gathered against the, the emphasis of that language there about what these people are doing as they get near Aaron is they're kind of coming at him like a little bit of an agitated group. They aren't coming nicely with a gentle request. They are coming a little fired up. And in fact, we see it in what they say. The NIV translates the first word come. Actually, some other translations use the words get up. And that has a parallel. In fact, if we were to just back up a little bit in the book of Exodus to chapter 12, verse 31, another character in this drama uses that same Hebrew word. The character that uses it happens to be the Pharaoh of Egypt. And the reason he uses it is because the angel of death has come through the people of Egypt and over the camp of the Israelites. And anyone who had not marked their door according to the regulations of the Passover, the eldest, the firstborn, is dead. Pharaoh himself impacted by that plague that came upon him, and he sends the order to Moses, get up and get out. There is an urgency to that word. This come, as in, you know, come, let us reason together in the Old Testament. No, it's not that. It's Aaron, we're upset, we're coming at you with a little agitation, and we want you to get up and do exactly what we say. It might be akin to, oh, I don't know how my parents or you as parents might speak to your children when you've told them to clean their room and you come in and see them sitting on the couch. You don't say, come now, let us reason together. No, you say, get up and go clean your room. Can I get an amen? amen. Exactly. I got some parents in the house. That's the emphasis here. That's the wording that's used. The people are coming to Aaron with a very particular agenda and with some forcefulness. They've, and the remarkable thing is, remember, all of this is happening at the base of the mountain that is still billowing with smoke, and they're still feeling the tremors. 
And that's significant to me because it reminds me of those times when I kind of take for granted the God that is rather plain if I just open my eyes and look around and see. All Israel had to do is look up, okay, God's still there. And I know maybe you could say maybe part of the dynamic is Moses went into that cloud. He went into that smoke, and maybe their thinking is anybody who goes in there ain't coming out. Maybe that's part of it. But nonetheless, they're still seeing it happen. The presence of God is there, and they come to Aaron, and they make just this strange request. Verse 2, Aaron answered them. Actually, Aaron kind of comes up with this idea. Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Can you imagine that? From a period of just a few months, repeatedly seeing God intervene on their behalf, miraculously, to being at the very base of the mountain upon which the presence of God has descended. And just days removed from the time they said to God, everything you have said, we will do. Now their proclamation is, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Aaron's not coming off so good either, is he? Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. By the way, the indulge in revelry is, well, let's just say it's kind of a technical term for a bit of an orgy that's happening. It's pleasuring each other in ways that that you would expect would come out of Near Eastern fertility type religions. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down because your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt, have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it, sacrificed it, and have said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. It is remarkable that that is where we are in the story. Moses with God, the people seeing the evidence of God, and so quickly turning here. Anybody ever traded in a car? Anyone? Okay, good. Let me ask. Typically, in my experience, has it also been your experience, that you drive a car, and maybe you drive it for a really, really, really long time. Typically, you drive it till the wheel's ready to fall off, and you pull into the lot, and the first thing you do is say, thank you, God, that it got here and it still cranks. Because at least they got to give me something for it. And later that day, you hope to drive off the lot with a car in even worse shape than the one you brought in, right? No, you take that old, kind of worn-out vehicle. At least that's been our experience. Driven as long as we could. Been paid off for a few years. Been great. Now it's just to the point of it's more expensive to fix it than it is to keep driving it. And so we're going to trade up. We like to trade up, right? there was a whole tv show we've talked about it before that was the whole point of it they would start with some random object that was valueless and through a f- series of trades would turn like a paper clip into a car 
you may, and it's really remarkable. I, I won't, I don't remember the name, but I remember watching it going, that's just crazy, you're reading about it. Really amazing the people that in the bartering system that could do that. Typically, that's what we want to do. We want to trade up. We want to improve our situation. Think about what Israel has done. Let's just say they've not traded up, right? They've definitely traded down. Psalm 106, verse 19 says particularly something about them. Actually, verses 18 and 19, I, I don't have a mark, so hopefully they'll come up on the screen so I can read them with you. Okay, I have to look them up. <laughs> oh, wait, there they are. At Horeb, they made a calf and worshipped an idol cast for metal. Next verse, this is my favorite part. They exchanged their glory for the image of a bull which eats grass. The glory of God, the supernatural Things that happened on their behalf exchanged for a bull who eats grass. Romans chapter 1 is a New Testament passage that, that deals with the same kind of thing. And a couple of verses in verse 23, I think, is the first verse we'll look at. Romans 1, 23 says, And they exchanged, this isn't about Israel, this is about you and me, by the way. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. And then verse 25 goes on and says this, They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. That's the trade that Israel makes. You know, that's the trade that you and I make more often than we probably care to admit. See, we, we like the tangible, don't we? I, I do. I like stuff I can touch, hold on to, see. And the, the real difficult thing sometimes with God, the real difficult part of faith, is that there's not that tangible, I can see him, I can touch him moment or relationship with God. God is spirit, scripture tells us. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. That, that this God who has revealed himself, yes, revealed himself in flesh and blood in Jesus, but even that Though we have the account in Scripture and, and all of the history of the early church, that even is a couple of thousand years removed from us. And so what we proclaim and what we worship at times does f or can feel a little bit at arm's distance. And sometimes we just want something tangible because it's real, because it's there. Remember a few times when I was a kid, I misbehaved. I'm sure that shocks you shouldn't a few times since i've been an adult guess what <laughs> same story you know usually when kids misbehave is when they think nobody's looking have you noticed that if you didn't know that well you're welcome <laughs> because that's how i was in fact uh, it was my cousin who lived next door and i we were outside kneeling behind i don't remember what we were doing we were doing something we shouldn't have done i know that and we were hiding in kind of the bushes around my house um, on the outside of my house, and I don't remember. I wish I could remember. I'd probably be embarrassing, but I'd tell you anyway if I could. I don't remember what it was. Nope, really don't. I want to say it was firecrackers or something, but it was probably worse than that, knowing us. Anyway, we were there, um, and we were laughing and talking, and in that moment of, of misbehavior, we heard the voice from on high. Boys, what are you doing out there? See, children also forget sometimes that sound travels. And just because you're on the outside of the house, if you're under an open window, everybody inside just heard what you're doing. That was the voice of my father. Uh, once again, he punished me. 
Um, but, you know, that's what we do. We kind of think nobody's watching, so it'll be okay. I won't get in trouble for it. And because God is spirit, he's not tangible. Sometimes, though, we would never say it that way because we would say God is um, omnipresent. He's everywhere at once, and God is always aware. But somehow we make that leap in our mind that really I'm okay enough that maybe he won't see this. Because if, you know, we imagined ourselves sitting across the table from God or sitting across the table from Jesus, some of the stuff that we do, we wouldn't do if that was how real he was in that moment. Just like if dad had been sitting with my cousin and I at that moment, we wouldn't have been doing what we were doing. But because God isn't that tangible, sometimes we grab onto something that is tangible. And for the children of Israel, it happened to be this very poorly fashioned calf image. It happened to be this eating and drinking and revelry that came out of this observance and this cry of allegiance to a poorly fashioned image of a calf because that was tangible and that was, that was something they could see. These are the gods that delivered you from Egypt. They knew they weren't finished, by the way. I wonder if some part of their wanting this tangible presence is because well, they didn't plan to stick around at the base of Mount Sinai forever. They had much fairer pastures to seek out. They needed something to go with them, something they could see and trust in, which is also odd because it was God who went before them and behind them, even as he delivered them from Egypt in the episode at the Red Sea, and even as he guided them to the very base of Mount Sinai. He was there in the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. It's not that God wasn't visible to them, and maybe like no other point in history, for them, he was very visible, and yet they were quick to throw it aside. They were quick to make that trade, but not a trade up, a trade down, the same trade you and I do. Well, God, as we just read in verse 8, knew this was happening, and so he sends Moses back down the mountain. We're going to pick up the story a few verses later when it says in verse 15 Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand these iconic tablets that we know were inscribed the ten commandments on those the rest of that verse they were inscribed on both sides front and back the tablets were the work of God the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets what a remarkable thing that was, that God not only gave them this covenant law, but he himself inscribed it on the tablets that would come to represent his word to them, some of the very regulations of the covenant that they had already agreed to do whatever God had said to them. And so Moses comes down holding these incredible Things And it says in verse 17, when, Mo, when Joshua, Joshua went up with him, heard the noise of people shouting, he said to Moses, there's the sound of war in the camp. But Moses replied, it is not the sound of victory. It is not the sound of defeat. It is the sound of singing, I hear. When Moses approached the camp, he saw the calf and the dancing. His anger burned. And he threw the tablets out of his hand, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. The, the word there is a forceful throwing them down. It's a purposefully shattering them 
is the image there. Not that they slipped out because he was flabbergasted at what he saw, but that in his frustration with these people, in his shock at their behavior, he throws them down. And I don't know exactly what they look like, but maybe pieces of them look very much like the stone you picked up earlier. These tablets that shattered the remnants lying at the feet of Moses. I wonder, maybe not in that moment, but if at any point any of the children of Israel ever wandered over to pick up one of those pieces of stone. It'd be a heck of a souvenir, wouldn't it? be something to be able to take that memento of God inscribing it writing his covenant commandments on it so that they would know be a remarkable thing well I think they were too shocked and too engaged in their revelry to notice anything that might have been valuable about that but but there they were broken and Moses amazed at the people And, and you know it's easy to talk about them, isn't it? Isn't it fun, in fact, to talk about them? I like when I can talk about them, especially when I can talk about how they are really sinners. That's the best, isn't it? To see sin, because we can see it. You know when we really see it? when it's somebody else's. I have an eye for sin when it's other people's like you wouldn't believe. I can spot it a mile away. And it's not a professional thing because y'all are just as good at it as me. Right? Sure we are. And, well, that's just one of those things. And and we're talking about these tablets where we, we talk about the Ten Commandments and and, and these things are pretty important, but when we think about them, we're not talking earth-shattering detail in those ten laws. They say things like, honor your father and mother. That's a good thing, right? That's, that's not something that, as people, we go, ooh, that's a tough one, God. No, we, we would generally, most societies would generally say, honor is due our parents. I mean, That is, most societies that aren't full of teenagers, right? Sometimes, teens, you know, maybe don't have that way, that that view of of parents all the time. You know, we we say things like, what do we call our dads those years? He's the old man. Yeah, my old man told me, right? That's honoring a father or mother, right? That's a term of endearment. No, it's not. But, you know, that's a simple one. How about... Lying, thou shalt not lie. Did you know a survey was done not too long ago? It's probably 10 or 15 years ago, so a little bit long ago. 91% of the people surveyed admitted to lying regularly. Yes, I lie regularly. 91% of the people surveyed. Of course, that means the other 9% probably. (laughs) Exactly, okay. Even more than that, Only 31% of the people in that same survey agreed with the statement, honesty is the best policy. Less than a third of the people would say honesty is the best policy. Now, I know that's not like biblical, 
can't give you chapter and verse for that, but, you know, kind of one of those general things. Thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not bear false witness. We would say that's there, and yet we find it at times easy to offer an untruth. Stealing, taking something that's not yours. We could talk about April 15th. Actually, it's April 17th or 18th this year, I think, isn't it? Because of the whole, it happens on a weekend. Nobody here would dare deny a government what's rightfully theirs out of your paycheck, right? Let's move on. <laughs> or even something like, thou shalt not commit adultery. We're pretty much, okay, that makes sense. You make a commitment to a husband or wife, you should be faithful to that. And, and, and we would know that. And then we'd think, what's, what's the harm? What's the craziness in that? commandment it's not you can, these are these are things that are sort of basic ethical things that most people would agree on and yet even those lie broken at the feet of Moses and even those if we're honest are ones that we break regularly because you know Jesus that whole adultery thing of all of those you were probably like yeah I've dishonored my mom and dad and yeah I've probably lied I've definitely lied and I've taken stuff that's not mine yeah but adultery and then what does Jesus say If you look upon a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery already with her in her heart. And so that leaves us all in a pretty bad way, right? We are rude to our parents, liars, thieves, and adulterers. Hi, welcome to church. (laughs) Tough thing. Andy Stanley few years ago talked in this sermon he said you know in our culture we don't like the term sin we don't like the term sinner so we'd much rather be mistakers <laughs> oh i'm sorry i made a mistake right now mistakes are good mistakes happen yes i've made mistakes have you made mistakes we've all made mistakes definitely but but the definition of mistake is an error in action, calculation, opinion, or judgment caused by poor reasoning. And here's the thing. If I make a mistake, it's not something I usually feel guilty about. And 40 years later or so, mention in a sermon because I threw a rock by mistake that happened to catch my friend in the mouth. That was just a mistake. I didn't mean to hit him. I was just skipping rocks mistake no that was done with well malicious intent that's something I still feel bad about if I saw him today I'd probably say really I'm really sorry about that rock thing I know it was a long time ago in a galaxy far far away but I'm really sorry about it because I don't feel bad guilt usually doesn't follow mistakes and here's the thing about mistakes you know what does it say it's an error in action calculation opinion or judgment um what do you do when you lie or steal or any of the other things that we thou shalt not and you think about it and do it anyway because I've done that. I know I shouldn't, but for some reason in this moment, the benefits seem to outweigh the punishment, so I'm going to go for it. That's not a mistake anymore. That's something much worse. That was intentional. That was, that was a sin whether it's those commandments that we're 
etched on tablets of stone that ended up broken at Moses' feet or some of the other things that we do that, that aren't so good. And here's the thing. I don't know that the issue is simply we've broken commandments. Yeah, we have, and yeah, they did. As much as I realize, the issue is I'm a broken person. Because of these tendencies, because of these things that I do that sometimes hurt myself and sometimes hurt others and definitely hurt God, there's something that I have to come face to face with. Not in the they that I see, but in the me that I am. And I, as I said, I don't know if any of the Israelites ever picked up any of those stones or kept them as souvenirs. But if they did, I imagine it would be kind of a hard souvenir to keep because the rest of your days you might remember that stone that chip from those tablets as a little bit of guilt you're carrying with you everywhere. Do you know one of my favorite verses in Scripture? It's Romans 8.1. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So I can take this stone, this representative piece of those tablets from years ago that reminds me of my guilt and place it at the foot of the cross. And by placing it there, that verse becomes true for me. There is now no condemnation for that moment in history where this stone represented a blow to somebody's face. There's now no condemnation because I'm in Christ Jesus. And your piece of stone that you picked up, I bet you could attach a story to it. Might even could attach a moment that you're not that particularly proud of. But I'm not here to remind you of those. I'm here to invite you to the cross. Because the promise of God is through the cross, through the death of Jesus who died, and, and he didn't have any of those mementos to be guilty about. He could die in my place. He could die for my sin so that I no longer have to fall under that condemnation. So today, I'm inviting you. If you've never placed your faith in Jesus as Savior, today would be a wonderful day to do just that. To admit, you're not a mistaker. No, you're a sinner. Mistakers just need to try harder. Sinners need a Savior. Sinners need forgiveness. Sinners need a cross. And today, if that's you, I invite you to the cross of Christ to receive his forgiveness and his salvation. Let's pray together.
Heavenly Father, in these moments, I thank you for what you have done for us. You've done for us what we were powerless to do for ourselves. When you entered history and bore our sins on Calvary's cross. Lord, I I thank you that I came to recognize my own sin and admit it to you and confess it to you and that your promise is that you forgive and that now I'm not under condemnation, but I've been adopted and accepted as your child. Lord, today I know there are people here who have never turned to you in faith. May today be the day they recognize their sin and their need for a Savior. And may they find in you the Savior that we all need. Lord, we give you now these moments of our service as we respond to you in faith. I pray in Jesus' name.